Alright, so Mark chapter 15, we are almost done with the book of Mark. And here we're going to be looking at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The most important story in all the Bible. This is Jesus Christ paying for sins. And uh, we would all be doomed if we're not for this. And of course we just celebrated the Lord's Supper recently where we look back uh, at the crucifixion of Christ. But let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with being reminded of this often. In fact, this is something we should be talking about on a regular basis, and uh, we should be thinking about it every day. This is why we are going to heaven, and we don't ever want to get over this. And uh, There's 47 verses in this chapter, and uh, there's no way you could ever do it justice. And, you know, there's, you know, whenever you preach on the crucifixion, a part of me always wants to go and jump around to all the other accounts, too, to kind of zero in on more of the details. And I don't want to do that. I want to mainly focus on uh, Mark 15 tonight, but... Uh, there's a few things here I want to show you that I think are important. Well, let's start reading verse 1. It says, And straightway in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away uh, and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the pre- chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answering nothing, so that Pilate marveled. And uh, I don't want to get off subject tonight, but this, it is so important that we notice what is being said right here and what Jesus is doing. This is very important. And this goes along with something I'm going to start preaching on on Sunday night. So I'm going to start doing it this Sunday night. I've been trying to think of how I wanted to cover this subject, but I decided to do a series of messages on Sunday evenings. But I'm going to be talking a lot about doctrinal disputes. You know, we like to fight about doctrine and things. And whenever doctrinal disputes get going on, one thing that often starts happening is when uh, somebody doesn't like the other side, they tend to start throwing accusations around. And that's, you know, accusations are very serious. We ought to take any accusations that we ever throw at somebody very, very serious. And isn't it interesting how when somebody doesn't really have anything, how what they end up doing is just throwing everything, including the kitchen sink at them. Now, why is that? They do that hoping they can just get anything to stick. And that's why you rarely see somebody attacked for just one thing. It's never just one thing. They always want to throw 20 things. And you know what they never do? They never provide the proof, do they? And isn't it just a fact, and this is not an American thing, this is actually biblical, but did you know this is that when it comes to accusations, the burden of proof is on the accuser. It's on the prosecution. You are, you know, in our country, we know the term innocent until proven guilty. If somebody comes to you and they say, you have done something, they need to prove that you did it. You don't have to prove that you didn't do it. So if somebody comes to me and they're like accusing me of preaching all kinds of heresy and believing all kinds of heretical things, I don't have to prove that I don't believe that. They need to prove that I do believe that. But why do they not do it? Why don't they just provide the proof? Why can't they just put out, hey, look, here's what he said. Because what they need you to do is they need to get you saying a whole bunch of stuff. They need to get you in defensive mode. That way you say one wrong thing, then boom, we got you there. And that's what they're doing with Jesus here. They were determined to put him to death. They were going to get him. Whatever it took, 
they were going to get him. So what do they do? They just start accusing him of everything. They're accusing him of many things, but Jesus, he isn't answering. And most of us, we have this attitude too. Well, you know, i got nothing to hide. You know, if the cops come for me, you know, I'm ready to talk. Well, that's exactly what they want you to do. Because you better believe they're keeping track of every little thing you say. And you need to understand, anything you say can and will be used against you. And we have the right to not incriminate ourselves. And Jesus here, He's just being accused of all these things. And you know what? Jesus, He had enough love for justice and right that He wasn't going to dignify these crazy accusations with a response. And so He just, He doesn't say, He doesn't say anything. And the Bible says that, that, you know, while Jesus is answering nothing, Pilate marveled at this. And often people do. They'll just start hitting you with things, throwing accusations at you, and then many people, they just don't respond. You know why? Because they're smart enough to know that, hey, if you're accusing me of these things, I'm going to assume you have the proof. Let's see it. You know, and so here, they've got Jesus. They've got him trapped. He's already beaten up. They've got him bound. So if they've got the goods on him, provide the evidence. Bring the witnesses. But you know what? They brought the witnesses and the witnesses didn't agree together, did they? But it didn't matter to them because they decided that they wanted this guy and mark it down. Whenever somebody has determined they're going to get somebody, they're just going to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, until something sticks. And that's why when people start doing that, just accusing you, it's better off just ignoring them. Don't give them more words. You know, and, then, and I've had these people too. You know, when they'll accuse, people accuse me of something, then it's like, you know, prove, you know, prove them wrong. It's like, no, they need to prove they're right. I, I don't have to respond to these things, and Jesus didn't do it. He did not respond. And so, I think, you know, the few reasons that Jesus may not have answered them is one, because he knew they weren't interested in the truth. You know, when some trendy wants to accuse me of being a legalist, it doesn't matter how much proof that I have I'm not a legalist. They're not interested in truth. They're just interested in accusing me. That's that's all they care about, you know. And they'll 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 try to twist your words. They'll listen to find whatever it is that they want to hear. But you know what? Accusations without evidence should not be dignified with a response. Okay, and understand an accusation without evidence is nothing. It's nothing, and at least it should be nothing. I get it. We live in America, and we got the news media that always reports accusations without evidence. And that's a wicked thing to do. They shouldn't do that. And so, because in the trial, the burden of proof is supposed to be on the prosecution. Jesus had nothing to prove. He didn't do these things, but and but they needed to prove that he did. And so, to play along with a mock trial, it would have been wrong. And so, Jesus, of course, he's doing the right thing here. And so, uh, but but just understand too. Once the powers that be decide they're going to get you, they're going to find something. Okay, that's why we have the tax code that we do. You know, the one that's impossible to keep. It's as impossible to keep as the law of you know the Old Testament. And so they'll get you with something if they decide they want you. But anyway, verse six says, "Now at the feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desire." So the custom was clearly a way the authority... And I, this is what I believe this was. Because isn't this kind of a weird custom that just every year on the feast, hey, we'll release one of the prisoners. Okay, now it sounds pretty good, but wait a minute. If they did something bad, why release them? 
Okay, But you know what? This is the type of thing that corrupt governments, that dictators, that they do to appease the people and to make them look like they're good to them or to make the people feel like they have power. Okay, Like supposedly... You know, you know, we were able to vote in this country, right? And so, you know, occasionally they allow us to do things to make us feel like we have some say in what goes on in this country. And let me, let me tell you, I do believe there are some things that they do allow us to have a say. I do, I do believe sometimes our vote matters, but here's why it matters, because they need to let it matter so we will feel like they are good leaders. If it becomes too obvious that we no longer have a republic or a democracy or that we just have basically an oligarchy, if that becomes too obvious, you know what might happen? We might overthrow them. And let me tell you something. The authorities, no matter how powerful they are, they always are going to fear the people. And we're going to see that. That's how it was even here. With Romans, with all, I mean, they're at world power at this time, but yet they would do things to appease the people, to calm them down, to keep them quiet. Like, give them a stimulus check. You know, or to, you know, just, you know, to, to entertain them, or just do something. And so what do they do? They say, you know what, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna keep this thing on where we will let them, you know, have a prisoner released. And so, uh, Verse 7 says, And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made the insurrection with them, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? So the multitude, they're, they're crying out for them to continue to do this thing that they've always done. Hey, you've always allowed us to do this. Do it again right now. And so... Pilate, being a coward, I think he was hoping that they were going to take Jesus. Because, you know, what do they do, too? Whenever it comes time for an election, they tell us, here's your two choices. You know, and usually the, uh, if they, uh, the choices aren't very good, but it makes us feel good if we think we've got one. But sometimes the people end up picking the one they didn't want you to pick. I think that's what happened with Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't think anybody was expecting that. And you know what? When Pilate... Put Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, against Jesus? Oh, this is going to be easy. They're going to pick Jesus. And then I don't have to worry about putting a just man to death. And then I don't have to worry about the, you know, the Jews and the scribes and Pharisees coming after me because at least I roughed them up really good already. And you know what? We have to follow this custom. The people demanded it. But you know what? These Pharisees, they were smart. They knew Pilate was a coward. They knew the way things were. And so you know what they did? They went and they got the people to choose Barabbas. That, and then Pilate ends up getting shocked when they choose Barabbas over Jesus. But never estimate, underestimate the power of the Jews media. I mean the news media. Never underestimate that power. They do know how to influence selections. I mean elections. And, okay? They know how to do that stuff. And that's exactly what they did right here. Say, man, that is so politically incorrect. I, I, I can't help it. I can't help it that what we see going on in the Bible is exactly what's going on today. Can, can we not all relate to this? You say, and, and again, you know, why would they choose that? Yeah, and then, uh, you know, and why would they, uh, I don't want to get into elections and stuff, but, 
Well, we need we need to stick to it. But so this this was this was a cowardly move by Pilate. But at the same time, too, he did this thinking this will you know make it so I don't have to kill Jesus. He didn't want to do it. And understand, a lot of times uh, political leaders they don't want to do bad things, but at the end of the day, they will do whatever they have to do to save their own skin. Because you know, they're cowards. And sometimes it's in their best interest to do good. But when it's not in their best interest to do good, trust me, they'll let us all suffer. That's just the, that's the way they are. So don't be fooled when they accidentally do some good stuff. Don't, don't be fooled. But verse 10 says, For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. So again, Pilate knows what's going on. He's like, listen, they put Jesus up here for envy. That's why they delivered him to me. He hasn't done anything. He is not a threat. He is not a danger. This is a just man. And so he did. But he puts this choice out. didn't matter. The Jews had already influenced everybody into making the wrong choice. And so it says, Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call king of the Jews. Now, why is he even asking these people? He's the leader here. You know what? Because he's just trying to make everybody happy. He's trying to just, he's trying to cover his own backside. It says, and they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, Release Barabbas unto them and deliver Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And let me tell you, it takes a brave man to go against the mob. And Pilate was not a brave man. Pilate did the wrong thing to appease the mob. And sadly, you know, when we live in a country that is wicked and where we have a growing wicked population, it's making it really tough for our leaders to do good things. And, you know, and some people, you know, they have the attitude, anybody that's ever, you know, been involved in public office was all a reprobate, blah, blah, blah. And then they can't figure out, you know, why they did some good things. And it's like, how could a reprobate make a good decision? Well, first off, we don't know they're all reprobates. But here's how a reprobate can make a good decision. If he's scared of the people. If the people, and that's why I believe during certain times in our country, a lot of good things happen. And even if you were to convince me that some of those people were reprobates, doesn't matter. The country wasn't reprobate. We had decent people living in this country. And so even guys like Pilate and Herod, I mean, think about it. Pilate would have done the right thing if the mob would have wanted the right thing. You ever think about that? So you know what? We all want to get bent out of shape with these politicians for being so wicked and reprobate and act like we haven't got a chance. We would have a chance if we would change the population. If we would change their minds and get them thinking righteous, they would get these cowards to do the right thing. So, you know, because even a reprobate, they want to save their own skin. And so, understand that the power is with the people. The power is with the people. And And that's especially the case in America with the former government we had, which is a lot different than what they had back then and a lot better. I'm, you know, we don't have an emperor right now. We don't have a world ruler like that right now. You know, we've got local leadership in a lot of, a lot of areas, especially in the areas that, that affect people. And so, you know, the thing is, we just gotta keep the population normal. 
And we can do that if we can preach the gospel, if we can teach all things like the Bible says, if we can be a light and stand against evil, we can make a big difference. So, uh, Pilate though, no, he was interested only in protecting himself. It says in John 19.12, says, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Now, here's the thing. Was Pilate an enemy of Caesar? No, Pilate wasn't an enemy of Caesar. But the last thing Pilate wanted was a rumor getting out that he was an enemy of Caesar. Because Pilate was a coward. And so Pilate, he hears this, and you know, he's thinking, man, I don't want I don't want to go around that I'm speaking against Caesar. And you know, and this is what people do all the time, too. When they want to control you, you know what they do? They start uh, throwing those accusations. Oh well, if, you know, if you do this, and and they do this with preachers too. Sometimes preachers they disagree with each other on things, and then you have the weirdos and the mobs that come along. You have the YouTube commenters and the Facebook people that come along. Oh, if you do this, you're not Pastor So and So's friend. You must hate Pastor So and So. No, actually, I just disagree with them on this. But then you have some preachers; they're so scared. Well, I, I can't have anybody thinking that, you know. And then they'll back down. And then they will appease the mob. And you know what? A real leader doesn't care about that. And, but unfortunately, uh, we have... You know, it, it's funny how it's the, the sleaze balls like Pilate that always get in power. And it just shows the type of... You know, it, it's the, the type of people to, to, typically that run for office and win are just the ones that just know how to schmooze the crowd the most. And they're not always... You know, sometimes there's good leaders, but most of the time they're just... For lack of a better term, backside kissers. That's all there is to it. And they uh, they don't have our best interest, interest in mind. They have their best interest. It's very annoying. And it's sad. And so it says, And the soldiers led them away into a hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now notice this. So Pilate, he's willing to content the people He's tried to stop them. Okay, he's the only like sane thinking one here so far, but at the same time, he's a coward. So what does he do? He ends up delivering him over to the Roman soldiers to be scourged and crucified. Now let's think about this for a minute, okay? Because now Pilate has pretty much given him over to a group of extremely wicked men that we're about to see. And what we're about to see here is just, it's a reminder of something really scary that a lot of our world understands and even Hollywood understands. Okay? Now, I hate to make carnal reference, okay? Uh, and, and I have not seen these movies, nor do I intend to watch these movies, but, but I've heard a lot about them. But, um, oh man, I probably shouldn't even mention some of these things from the pulpit. But there are movies out there that have uh, come up with these stories where basically there's a time of year where all laws are gone and people can pretty much do what they want. And on those movies, apparently, pretty much what it is, it's just a whole movie of people just doing horribly disgusting and violent things to people. Because for like 24 hours, they can't. And you know what? I hate to think about what it would be like if there was no restraint on the wicked for 24 hours. If there was no restraint... And no consequences. I mean, 
I think if that were to happen, I think places like Rock Falls would probably do pretty good because we've got a lot of people who carry guns around here. And so, I mean, you know, we'd be safe at my house. I won't talk about, you know, on the live stream what I've got to take care of things. But at the same time, you know, and, and, and our neighbors are good people. But, you know, there's some cities. Imagine if you lived in San Francisco or Chicago or just any city. And, and you know what? These movies, too, I believe are usually, you know, set in cities. And, and, think, and you know what? The, even Hollywood knows this is what people would do if they could get away with it. And this, and that, it's a, it's a scary thought. I mean, thank God we do have some law and order in this country. But imagine a world with no law and order, and they basically Jesus has now just been handed over to a group of guys that are just evil to do what they want, to, to have their way. And so when they do, when they bring them together, what do these guys do? Okay, they're supposed to just be punishing a crime. Okay, but these guys are just sick and twisted. And it's not enough for them. What do they do? They clothe him in purple. Why? To mock him. Okay, They're putting that royal color on him, but not to honor him so they can mock him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Okay, Where was that prescribed in any punishments or things they have? We don't see them do I don't. I've never even heard historically of them doing this. I'm sure they might have with some people. I think this is something they did especially for him, just to mock him because... Of the fact that he was being, you know, he was the king of the Jews. And it says, and bowing their knees worshiped him. They weren't doing this out of respect. They were mocking him. It's not enough he's being beaten already. He's been humiliated. They're mocking him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. So you know what? This just shows what kind of men these soldiers were. That Pilate handed him over to. He went and he handed him over to a bunch of scumbag soldiers that were just that weren't going to just nail him to a cross. They were going to beat on him. They were going to humiliate him. They were going to do things to mock him. In the meantime, you know this is wrong. Imagine what would happen in our country today. If, let's say, somebody was being executed, which is a pretty rare thing, but if somebody's being executed, if the executioner decided to have some fun and mock the guy. You know how much trouble they get into today? But you know what? Uh, this was a very less civilized world back then. And let me tell you, you know, there's people out there today that if they could, if they could get away with killing whoever, they'd do it and they would enjoy it. There's, there's sick people out there and that's the kind of soldiers they were. And so... This is Jesus being delivered in the hands of sinful men, which was prophesied. This is what he told his disciples was going to happen. I'm going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men. And, it said, and so, uh, it, but it is, it is a terrifying thing to think about what certain men would do if unrestrained. And there are, there are people, they would take anything and they would, they would blow your, if they would blow your brains out in a heartbeat if they could, knew they could get away with it. That, and that is, that's a scary thought. And so it says in verse 21, And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And so Jesus clearly, he was in bad shape at this point because he had already taken the beating that we saw 
uh, in chapter 14. And then here, they went and they put a crown on his head. They hit him over the head with a reed. I mean, so he's already been roughed up pretty good. He, you know, I don't know how long, how much time has gone by when he was on trial. But he's already been through a lot. And so they, they compelled Simon uh, to help him carry this cross. Now, notice how it says that the soldiers compelled Simon to carry Jesus' cross. Okay? Now, I want you to look over at Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you something here that I think is interesting. But uh, a lot of people don't uh, f- totally understand what this is talking about when it talks about compelling somebody to do something. But here's another verse that's pretty familiar. Uh, but in Matthew 5.38 it says, Ye have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Now notice what we've been seeing right here so far, is we're talking about retaliation against things that are wrong, especially things that are done wrong according to the law. Okay. Now according to that Old Testament law, it was, it was eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But then he goes on here and he says, you know what? Resist not evil. Okay? Resist not evil. So if somebody smites the right cheek, turn the other. If anybody sues you at the law, give him your cloak also. And then look what he says here after this, because he's been talking about wrongs being done to you. He goes on and says, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. And now what does that mean there, that compelling to go a mile? Well, uh, according to one of the customs and laws that they had back then, we don't read about this in the Bible, but I think we're kind of seeing it here in Mark chapter 15 that uh, uh, one of the th- rules that they had or laws they had is a Roman soldier could basically, in, if they were um, on a journey or passing through an area, and if they saw you, they could basically enlist you right there into public service or you would have to carry their things for them, but just for a mile. That was uh, that was kind of a, a rule or custom they had there. And that word compel, the definition of it, it means to be a courier or to press into public service. So basically what the soldiers were able to do back then, if maybe they're carrying their weapons and their things and you know it's heavy, and they see you out just you know walking the streets doing whatever, they can you know, point you up, Brother Brian. Come carry this for me, and then now you got to help the Roman soldiers. You got to quit whatever you're doing and go carry that a mile. Now that stinks. I'm glad our cops don't do that today. Now they do it on movies all the time, where they'll just come along and they'll take your car. You know, when they're chasing the bad guy or something like that. I'm not letting them do it. All right, because a lot of times it was a good guy they were chasing in the movie. You know, that they just think is bad. You know, but anyway. Uh, But you know, now I don't think that that's fair. But, you know, I don't think that Jesus necessarily thought that was fair either. But you know what? That was the law that they had in that time. And you know what Jesus is telling these people here? You know what? Don't resist evil. Don't go fighting back, trying to get retribution. And let me tell you something. We've got a wicked government. Our government has done a lot of bad things. They steal a lot of our tax dollars. But you know what we shouldn't do? Retribution. We should not go blowing up government buildings. We shouldn't go stealing our money back. And understand, when Jesus brought up that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and all that, 
when he when he goes on, he's saying this. He was specifically talking about getting retribution for injustices done to you, and specifically too in areas where it was the government doing it. And so let me tell you, as much as our government disgusts me and all the bad things that they've done to us in this last year, you know what? I'm not going to go do some evil thing back to them. I have no intention of assassinating any of our political leaders or anything like that. What are you going to do? You know, we ought to do something. Well, you know what? We are allowed to vote against these people. We are allowed. We do have free speech. We are allowed to speak against them. That's not evil. That's not, you know, you know we are allowed to send them nasty emails, which I fully intend to do tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're allowed to do those things. But at the same time, too, if they don't give us what we want, or Dixon, if they let the freaks come in and do their thing, what are we going to do about it after that? You know, well, nothing illegal. I promise you that. We're not going to blow anything up. You know, we're not, that's not, that's not how it works. And so, uh, anyway, but that's what that, when it talks about if, if someone compelled thee go a mile, saying go twain, you know what? He's saying do more. And that's where we have to go the extra mile from, you know, do a little more because you know what? You don't want to go fight. Don't, don't go fighting that. Don't go resisting evil like that. It's only going to end up hurting you. It's going to get you into more trouble. And so basically though, that practice is what we see happening here with, with Simon. He just happens to be going by, and so the soldiers tell him, hey, you're carrying the cross, and by law, he now has to carry the cross. He's got to do this. So I believe that's what we see going on here. So verse 22 says, And they bring him unto the place called Gotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull, and they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Now, I don't know this for sure. It doesn't say who it was that tried to give him this. I looked up what wine mingled with myrrh is or what it does. Uh, some things were saying it was something that was meant to numb the pain. And so maybe it was something that people watching did to try to help him out. But Jesus refused it. You know, he's going, he's supposed to suffer this pain. But it also could have been something too, uh, they were doing just to mock him. Uh, it's really hard to say. But either way, he didn't take. You know, he didn't take it. If it didn't numb the pain, he didn't take it, and uh, he didn't even take the vinegar until it was time when he was on the cross, right before he died. And he did that not to please himself, but to fulfill the scriptures. And so it says in verse twenty-four, and when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified. And this is bad too. I mean, here you have the man dying. And what are they doing? They're gambling for his clothes right there while he's still alive. That's just disrespectful, isn't it? I've been there before at, when, at deathbeds. And, and, and in deathbeds, a lot of times, you know, uh, you know I, I, in fact, not that long ago, I went and visited somebody that was dying. And they wanted to talk to me about funeral plans. And you know what we did? We stepped out of the room just because they felt weird talking about when that person's dead while they're right there, you know. And and it's just kind of a respectful thing, you know. You don't want to talk about them like they're not there when they're still there. You understand that? You know, and some people don't mind. Some people be like, well, you know, I want to be in that conversation because I want to be, and, that, and, that, you know, and that's fine too. But, you know, you shouldn't just, if, if you're at somebody's deathbed, start talking about, hey, um, so who's getting all the money? You know, who's getting whatever. Don't do that. 
That's disrespectful. But yeah, here they are. Just again, you've got Jesus Christ who deserves all honor, glory, and respect, and he's just being treated with just absolute disrespect. These soldiers, they, they don't even they don't even care that he's right there. And there they are gambling for his garments. This was extremely wicked. It just shows the type of people that they were. So it says and it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And that comes from the famous Isaiah 53, that is one of the most uh, clear prophetic scriptures about Jesus that you would have to be a Jew to not read and not know that that's talking about Jesus Christ. But it says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Use that verse next time somebody wants to tell you the death isn't in the Old Testament. I didn't talk about the death of Christ in the Old Testament. Go read Isaiah 53, 12. That's pretty clear right there. So, there's no doubt that we're seeing a picture here with Jesus between the two thieves. Because you know what? The Bible doesn't really tell us anything different about those two thieves except one. He said, save us from the cross. And another one just said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And we see one believed on Christ and who he was. One said, if thou be the Christ, save us and you know thyself and us. But one, that's not what he did. He called, he told that other thief, hey, this man, he hasn't done anything wrong. We are here justly. He recognized that he was a sinner and he looked at Jesus Christ and in the only, in just his own words, the only way he knew how, said, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom and Jesus saved that man. And this is a great reminder too. I think God did this on purpose because Jesus Christ, he was, he was dying for all sinners. He was dying for everyone. And the only difference between those who are saved and not saved is some believe, some don't believe. I don't believe it's a matter of, well, Jesus picked the one on the right and he didn't pick the one on the left. No, I believe he died for both of those guys equally, but one accepted and one rejected. So verse 29 says, And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe and they that were crucified with him reviled him. So this, uh, this is the same cry of many people today and that is if God does what I want him to do, then I'll get saved. And that is how many people are today. I don't believe in God because if I was God, I wouldn't let there be coronavirus. If I was God, I wouldn't let there be, you know, child molesters. And if I was God, I wouldn't put the child molesters to death. You know, it's like everybody, they don't want to believe in God because they don't like what God does. In other words, they think they would make a better God. In other words, you know, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. You know, neither were they thankful, came vain their imaginations, and their, uh, their wicked heart, it was darkened. I didn't quote that exactly right, but you all know Romans 1. 
And that's pretty much what happens. People, they just don't like the God of the Bible. And what do they do? They want to impose their own will on them, and so they make a God in their own image. In other words, not so much with their looks as much as, well, one who does things like they do. And a lot of people are preaching a God that they made in their own image. An effeminate God that's all about love, never hates anything, never down on anything. Let me tell you something. You know, and people act like you know the God of the Old Testament is completely different from the God of the New Testament. The problem is they just haven't read the book of Revelation. You read the book of Revelation, you'll see it's the same God that's in the Old Testament. You think that just because though we're in this time of grace right now where God is being gracious to us, okay, and that's just right now. Because understand, all this junk that's going on, the world's going to pay for it. So uh, nobody's, getting, nobody's getting away with anything. That's not the kind of God that's out there, but people don't like that. And so what are these people doing? They're mocking him, and they're thinking this will, it, it, us doing this, it will get Christ to do what we want him to do, but that's not how God works. And you know what? These people out there today saying, I'll believe God if God does what I want him to do. You know what? God's not going to do what he wants him to do. God's not going to change who he is. God's not going to veer off from his holiness just to please these people. God is always going to do uh, what a holy God would do. And if they don't like it, then they can just die and go to hell. Because that's exactly what's going to happen to them. So verse 33 says, When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. Now, I don't know this for sure. Okay, I was trying to see if I could tell through the text, but it was a little bit difficult. But it just mentions how when this all this is going down, okay, first of all, it's been dark for three hours at basically high noon our time, from noon to three. That would scare you, right? I mean, at this point, here you've got a guy they're putting to death. They're saying they're putting him to death for claiming to be the Son of God, and then it's dark for three hours in the middle of the day. If I was these people, I would start saying, um, I wonder if we made a mistake here. That's what I, I like to think that that's what I'd be doing at this point. And it appears, I, I don't know that I can connect these two right here for sure, but when it talks about one going, I believe it would have been a soldier that would have went to give him the vinegar, and it appears that he got a little bit scared at this point. He's thinking, you know, we better give him something. We better do something. But then they're saying, you know, let's see if Elias will come. And again, I don't know if they're saying this in a mocking way. Yeah, let's see if Elias will come. Or if they were like, Actually wondering, is Elias going to come and save him? I don't know for sure what's going on here, but keep that in mind. Uh, so it says in verse 37, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that, he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And so... Uh, I'm wondering if that was that one that went to give him the vinegar. He's the one that kind of gets scared. 
Where the other ones are like, you know, let's see if Elias comes. Because you know what? Some people are just so wicked and they're so reprobate. Even if they were doing something bad, they still want to see a show. Hey, let's see a prophet come do a miracle. You'd think they'd be scared, thinking we'd be the first ones dead. But no, but you have one. After this happens, says, truly, this man was a son of God. He realized what had taken place. He realized what had happened. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whatever happened to that centurion. Uh, we have no idea. We did a whole play about him. I remember when we were at my dad's church, but uh, that wasn't really Bible-based. There was a lot of artistic license uh, in that. And uh, he got saved, and then uh, later his son got thrown in a coliseum with a gladiator and had to fight a guy and got killed in that. But anyway, but you know, there's been all kinds of movies made about things like this. Anybody ever seen the movie The Robe about one of the Roman soldiers who got Jesus' robe? Uh, and uh, you know they did a whole movie based on that, and uh, people have done stories because you you wonder about these people. In the movie, the greatest story ever told. Uh, it's a movie about Jesus. I forgot when it was made. It was a long time ago. But that movie, it's like full of famous people. There's all kinds. There's all kinds of famous people that all do cameos throughout that whole movie. Uh, the main reason we watched it, uh, a guy who used to go to our church over the, uh, at my dad's church was actually an extra in that movie. And he was telling us about it, so we wanted to watch it so we could see him on the movie. And we watched it. But that centurion who said, truly, this man was the son of God, was John Wayne. And I don't know, but that proves John Wayne was saved. Uh, right? <laughs> I hope John Wayne got saved. I've heard all the stories about him getting saved. I don't know if it's true or not. But anyway, I, I hate getting sidetracked on stuff like that. But anytime I see that line, I think about that. Because they do that. That movie, he's just standing there. Like a Roman soldier, which was weird, but then in that John Wayne voice, truly, this man was the Son of God. And that wasn't a good impression, but nobody can do it like the Duke. But anyway, verse 40, There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him, Unto Jerusalem, and now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. And so right here is where the idea of Good Friday comes from, because it was the preparation for the Sabbath, which you would assume is Saturday. And you know what? I I based on the book of Mark, if you just follow the timeline in the book of Mark, it kind of looks like Friday, folks. If you just follow the events is outlined in the book of Mark, it really looks like it's Friday. Okay, And then you get the three-day, three-night thing, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, on that tonight. But at the same time, too, it doesn't have to be because, again, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover was a Sabbath week. And so it could have been a reference to the preparation for that. So, uh, you know, anyway... Um, you know, this is a great example of, and this is something I'll be talking about on Sundays. Do you know there are some things that we should be allowed to argue about and have really strong opinions on and yet not get mad at each other over? And this is probably one of those. I think as long as you believe that Jesus Christ died, you know, do you have to get the day right and all that? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Baptists, we will split over anything. I, I think it'd be interesting if we knew how many Baptist churches were started because of just actual church plants versus church splits. 
be interested if we can get the statistics on that and uh, find out how many were birthed by splits. We'd probably be surprised. But either way, because I, I, I think good, healthy discussion on different things, it really helps us and it sharpens us up. You know, it challenges us and is good for us, but you just can't do that in some places and in some circles and in some churches. You're not allowed to disagree on anything, but as long as you believe Jesus died, you know what, you know, we, we can argue about that stuff some other, some other time. And I could probably make a, a good Friday argument if we stayed just in the book of Mark. Maybe Thursday, maybe Thursday, but from, from Mark, it looks a lot like it's just Friday. But anyway, verse 43 Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of a centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. So I guess, you know, normally crucifixions, I mean, took, could take really, really long time. You know, just because pretty much what they would do is they just nail them to that cross and then eventually they would just get to where their bones would all get out of joint and they just couldn't pull themselves up to breathe anymore and they'd suffocate. But I think because of just the brutal beating that Jesus had taken before, it caused him to die uh, sooner than one normally would have. And so that's why Pilate marveled. And you know what? But that's what happens when you hand them over to a bunch of sick, twisted individuals. And they just... Go crazy. It's kind of like that story in Judges when that man sent his concubine to those reprobates. What did they do? They just tore that poor woman apart and, and killed her. And again, men unrestrained is a very terrifying thing. So uh, it says that he, he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in linen and laid him in the sepulcher, which is hewn out of rock and a stone, rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, Joseph's beheld where he was laid. And so I believe it mentions that little detail about how they saw where he was laid because in the very next chapter is where we see the story where they were going to anoint the body and take care of the body of Jesus. And so the crucifixion of Christ is without a doubt, I mean, the, one of the most important stories in human history. Everything in the Old Testament with the sacrificing of lambs, it all pointed to that event. When you go and you're reading about a lot of those feasts, when you're reading about all those sacrifices and things they used to do, where it sometimes maybe gets a little boring, a little monotonous, just understand all of that was being written pointing people to the cross. I'm sorry, Ruckmanites, the Old Testament is pointing to the cross. There's no doubt about that. Everything they did in the Old Testament pointed to the cross, it testified to the cross, and everything now in the New Testament is us pointing everybody right back to that. Why? Because that's where salvation is. Jesus hanging on that cross, it's like when they put that serpent on the pole and they said, look and live. What do we do? We point people to the cross because that's where their salvation is. In Jesus Christ, we're always... And so the Bible starts out showing how man fell because of sin and the story of Jesus Christ is showing how man was able to make a comeback to God but it was through Jesus Christ. So the story of redemption, it is, it, this, it's the most beautiful story in all the world. This is one that we should be telling everywhere we go. And that is why we have soul, weekly soul. We were supposed to be telling everybody about that story. And unfortunately, the Jews media is still not telling the story. I mean, the news media is not telling that story. 
They're telling lies about it, just like they did back then. Paying people off to say that the body was stolen. Coming up with all these documentaries and things, you know, to tell that tell another story. You got these, you know, uh, Da Vinci Code stories people are telling. And it's amazing how you can take a fictional book that's in the fiction section that everybody knows is fiction. And I've like talked to people out sewing before, and they believe that's what really happened. So you do realize that's a fake movie, and a fake book that was written in like the 90s, I think. Is that when that was written? It wasn't that long ago. It was like, you're, you're completely out of your mind. I, you know, go, go look at the Mona Lisa with a black light. It doesn't have any of that stuff on it. Okay. That's, that's made up. Okay, next thing you know, they're, you know, with these people who believe that, they're going to be going to Independence Hall looking for Benjamin Franklin's glasses so they can read the map on the Declaration of Independence and find the big treasure. That's how dumb some people are. But let me tell you something. You know, this is, this is a real story that really matters and we need to make sure we're telling everybody about it. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to, uh, just, uh, as we are reminded of the story that will just renew in us a desire to tell others about what you did for us, and we do. We thank you for this wonderful story, Lord. It was a it was a horrible, horrible day to you, Lord, but we just can't help but look back at it and just rejoice and and praise you for what you did. And I pray that uh, the, the story will just bring great joy and comfort, knowing that our salvation is taken care of and it's secured, that you took care of it for us. In your name we pray. Amen.